a quote that says, we each have two lives and our second life begins when we realize we only have one life. And mindfulness, it, it woke me up. It woke me up to the fact that I've only got one life. Hello, you're very welcome to the Parentline podcast. I'm your host, Kerry McLean. I'm a broadcaster, a Parentline ambassador, and I'm a mum of three. And this is the podcast where we talk all things parenting, both the joys and the challenges along the way, wherever you are on your parenting journey. How many times have you caught yourself doing something that you know isn't good for you? And how many times have you realized that you're stressed to the high heavens and you don't feel like you're ever going to be calm again? And then how many times have you seen that exact same behavior echoed in your kids and you just wish that you had a way to help? Well, I've got the man with me today that can help us all, Patrick McElwee. Patrick works with both adults and young people, helping us all to understand our thoughts and our behaviours just that wee bit better and find ways to manage all those anxieties and those worries that creep up on us and take over. Patrick, you are quite frankly the man that the whole entire country needs at the moment, I think. Oh my goodness, what an introduction. I want to meet this guy. (laughs) He sounds great. He does, doesn't he? Well, listen, tell us all about this man. Before we get some advice from you, tell us a wee bit more about yourself. Yeah, certainly. Thanks so much for having me. Well, prior to working in mental health, which frankly for me is a, is a dream job, it really is such a passion. I started my career working in retail and then moving on to uh, moving on to banking because I thought that that would be the uh, professional, respectable thing to do, you know, get a get a job in a bank. And uh, I worked my way, started in the um, the contact centre in Belfast, the uh, Halifax uh, Gasworks. And then uh, worked my way up into Bank of Scotland over in Glasgow as a uh, assistant relationship manager for commercial banking. So I had a portfolio of clients um, in the small and medium enterprises and I felt very, very professional and very proud of myself. But unfortunately, I wasn't very good back then at uh, recognising some of the signs and symptoms of poor mental health uh, and definitely that of, of stress and of anxiety whenever I had a a warning sign, like a a tight chest, or you know, series of nightmares, or having these mind blanks or unexpected mood swings. I just thought that I needed to work harder. I needed more clients. I needed a bigger promotion. So I kind of pushed and pushed, and it kind of really wasn't till it all uh, uh, it all kind of meet a, a very uh, dramatic climax one day that I had a full blown panic attack in the office. The first panic attack that I'd I'd ever had. Uh, we were changing our computer systems and. I was kind of uh, the designated IT guy uh, running around helping everyone with their computers. And I was sitting there at my desk and I had my manager in front of me, my manager's manager behind her, then the regional manager over in the corner. Uh, these are all key stakeholders as they refer them to in the, the commercial world. And uh, I just took a complete mind blank. Didn't know what I was doing, clicking between the tabs of my computer. And this feeling just rose up in my body um, started on my toes, churned my stomach, tightened my chest. I couldn't breathe. And next thing my hand was shaking and the tears were just pouring out of my eyes and my, at my desk. I just couldn't believe what was, uh, what was happening. 
And I would honestly love to say that that was the that was my turning point where I recognized that I was pushing myself too hard, that I needed to look after myself, you know, engage in self care. But it was like uh, like many people, we these warning signs kind of come and go, and we uh, we don't we're not really aware of them. And uh, I kept on pushing through, and it really kind of came to the point where my mental health uh, problems developed into mental illness. I uh, was diagnosed with clinical depression. And it got to the point where I couldn't, um, I couldn't leave the house. Um, I was oh my just, yes. yeah. And had you known? I mean, whenever you had that initial panic attack, like, did you know what it was at that stage, or did you just not want to know? Did you just want to breathe, you know, breeze on past? I, do you know what? I, I think it was the the unknown, unknown. I didn't, I didn't know at all what I was experiencing. And I just put it down to that I wasn't working hard enough, that I needed to be more in control. I needed more clients. And I think probably at that time there was a lot of a lot of self-flagellation, a lot of a lot of internal negative dialogue. This is typical of you. You know, you're always messing up. You're the only one here who's not in control of things. And of course, that only adds more, more fuel onto the fire. So it wasn't until I went through that that massive journey. That I started to come, started to look at. Well, how can I, how can I rebuild myself? And I was very lucky. I was in a really fortunate position that I had a had a mother who was a counsellor. I had an auntie who worked in uh, the crisis response team um, in the hospital. I had a stepmother who worked in family mediation. So there's a lot of a lot of communication, a lot of dialogue in my family, and a lot of awareness about. Uh, about mental health and my mum actually came to me one day in my house when I was at my lowest I was you know barely getting out of bed wasn't getting dressed what you know wasn't you know wasn't leaving the house and she says that she came to the house and she said you know the spark behind your eyes is gone the boy that I knew is just a shell of himself and it was just like a real a real wake-up call for me to realize that how I was living and what was going on and started me in a in a journey to get him better, to learning a lot of the tools that I now teach people today. And and I must say that although that time was so challenging and so difficult, I feel like I've learned so much about myself from that, from that journey. And whenever I go into my workshops, whenever I go into schools and teach my six-week mindfulness program, or um, I run my depression support group on a Thursday morning, or I go into workplaces, I obviously bring with me the, you know, the the courses I've been on, you know, the uh, the tools that I have learned, but also that lived experience of having been there. And I think that people really, really relate when someone has been through that journey. I think 100%. It just makes it seem so much more, well, I don't know. I think if, if, at, a, at its most basic, it gives somebody hope whenever they have felt so very, very low and they're talking to somebody who knows exactly how they have felt at different times. But lots of people, I mean, so many people are experiencing anxiety, are experiencing depression. How do you go from your own journey through that to then deciding, actually, this is what I want to work and I want to work in helping others coming through this? Yeah. Well, for me, I think that mental health was always something that I was really it was something I was always interested in. I was always interested in personal development. I was always interested in being better and learning and learning new skills. And whenever I finally got to a point where I think it wasn't until I really hit bottom, it got to the point where I felt like I didn't want to live anymore, that a voice came to me and I don't know 
to this day what that voice was, you know, if that was my deeper self, if that was the voice of God or whatever that was, you know, who knows, but it says that if you can, if you can use this pain and suffering that you're experiencing to help one other person, then your life would be worth living. And that kind of became my motivation. It was like, well, how can I, how can I take all this pain and suffering that I'm feeling in this moment to help one other person? And it almost kind of became like a, it became like a drive. It became like a mission that I would somehow use this suffering. I'd almost buy my life back by helping somebody else. And I began CBT. And CBT I find especially effective because I find that there was so much had kind of gone on in my past. It's not, it's not really until you start to talk that you begin to realize like, oh, I'd experience a little bit of, you know, a bit of sectarianism whenever I was at that age, or I'd experience a wee bit of trauma here, or that was X, Y, and Z. And it was helpful to go there. But I find, especially for me, the CBT was all about, how did you feel today? What were the thoughts that you were having today? And it just, it just started to unpick a lot of the really unhelpful negative thoughts that I was having. And I find that really helpful. And, and when I went on then and did my courses in, in CBT and began to began to help others, I really started to see actually that's a really, it's a really effective tool. So CBT was really one. And then the other one that was really helpful for me was um, was mindfulness. It's an incredible journey that you've been on. I mean, it really is. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to go from feeling so, so bad to, to then turning it around, not only improving your own life, but then working really hard to help others. You mentioned being a father there. Were you a dad when you were already going through all this or was that something that came later on yeah. for you? And I think that was really, that was really one of the factors. I think at that time in my life, there was work and I always feel that in life we have two platforms to stand on. We have a work life and we have a home life. And if one is vibrating and one is steady, you can lean your weight on one. And in this situation, I was, um, I'd gone through a separation with, uh, with, the, with the mother of my children. I had two children and that relationship was, had broken down. It really had, um, I think that, you know, there's the few unicorns that, you know, whenever they separate and they co-parent wonderfully and they have, you know, they're still best friends and they get on really great. But I think for a lot of people that that, you know, that's just not the, just not the story that in a breakdown of relationship, you know, there's, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain and um, there's a lot of sadness about how things have, uh, have turned out. And I was also going through that and living apart from my, you know, living apart from my children while also dealing with those challenges and work. So at that time, it was it was incredibly difficult. Do you think that that was harder for you to cope with as a dad, possibly, than your partner as a mum? I do wonder about that just because I know that men and their relationships with friends and stuff can be very different to women in their relationship mm. with friends. You know, there's maybe not the emotional outlet possibly mm. that, that that sometimes women would have in their social networks? I think that, I think it's a great question. And I think that every, everybody goes through their own struggle. Everyone's struggle looks different because in one hand, as the dad in that situation, as a separated parent, I was, you know, I'd moved out of the family home. I was back living with my family. So there's a dynamic there, back living with your parents again. Um, I was missing my children terribly. And, you know, 
there was a lot of a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. But then there's also then a mother who now is in a house who's looking after two children by herself, who has to deal with everything now. The shopping, the cooking, the cleaning, the getting the kids to school, dealing with the homework, answering the question, where's dad? What's happened? Why's dad not coming home? You know, so I, I think that everybody loses in that situation. I don't think there's, I don't think that there's a winner, you know, um, and I think that it's a challenge and I think it's a challenge in time for everybody and everybody's hurting in that situation. So do you use then your meditation and your mindfulness, those skills that you have developed and that you teach others, do you still use those yourself whenever you are co-parenting, whenever you are, you know, maybe you feel a bit cross about something and yet if you kind of step back, you know, and you use those methods, does that help? Oh, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of a quote. There's a quote that says, we each have two lives and our second life begins when we realise we only have one life. And mindfulness it, it woke me up. It woke me up to the, the fact that I've only got one life and that holding, what does it say? Holding anger and resentment is like drinking poison and expecting another person to die. That I realized that there's no, there's no point holding anger and resentment. And when I go through difficult challenge as a parent, like for example, it, my daughter turned, uh, turned 11 there the other day and I didn't know what to get her, so I got her quite an outlandish uh, present. I took her to the Sleeve Donner down in Newcastle. We were going to go down there, do the spa. I, I was going to take her to the, uh, you know, the, the arcade nearby, and we were going to play games in arcade all night. I knew it was going to be fantastic. And I picked her up, and uh, she got in the car, and I was like, hey, happy birthday. And she's like, on her phone, click, 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 click. She looked at me, she's like, what? And I was like, happy birthday like we're gonna have a great day like are you looking forward to x y and z and she was just like oh. <laughs> and back to her vote again and you know you feel the emotions like you remember like those kettles that uh they used to whistle whenever they used to, whenever they were boiling they're sitting on the stove you know we're both from the both from the country i'm sure we yes. sure remember the uh the aga sitting with the, the things on top and i could just feel the whistling starting to begin inside me and previously I would have reacted to that. And what mindfulness does is it teaches you to respond and not to react. And quite often that there's you and there's the emotion and they're sandwiched together. They're very, they're very interlinked. That emotion is you and you are that emotion. And what mindfulness teaches you is, is that you have thoughts and you have feelings. You are not thoughts and feelings. You're someone that has thoughts and has feelings. And in that moment I recognized, ah, Frustration, anger, sadness, all boiling within me. And it just, it just puts the crowbar in between you and that emotion and you can just wedge it. And when you get that wedge, then you get that, you get that breath and you go, okay. And I just sat in that and I, a tip that I learned was, was holding, holding space with my young people. So I just sat there and I just counted to 10 seconds. I just sat and I breathed in and I breathed out. And I breathed in and breathed out. And as I breathed in, I said, this is my in-breath. And as I breathed out, I said, this is my out-breath. And then after a couple of those, I began to feel the emotions simmer. And then as I breathed in, I say, I breathe in calm. I breathe out love. I breathe in calm. I breathe out love. And that feeling, it transmutated into a, into a bit of a smile. It, it brought me back into my happiness again. I turned around and I said, well, 
do you know what? We're going to have a really good day today. I'm, look, I'm really looking forward to it. And I find that even taking those breaths, my, you know, my energy and my enthusiasm, it just come down and met her level a little bit more because I probably was coming in quite hot there. Happy birthday, you know, big energy. And she just was, she wasn't there and, and that's fine. And whenever I come down, something had changed. And she said, um, where is it we're going to today, dad? And uh, I was like, we're going to go to this hotel. It's going to be really good. And I think that especially dealing with young people is that we feel the need to fill in a lot of space. We'll need to kind of keep on talking when they're not giving us a lot. We kind of feel the need to kind of come in and uh, counting, counting 10 seconds from the last time you said something until you say something else. And I usually find, and it feels like a long 10 seconds, usually around seven or eight seconds, they'll come back and say something and ask another question. So for me, dealing with the children, the mindfulness has been great. But then also in the co-parenting, it's been a superpower as well to be able to, to help me deal with some of the challenges there. I think that's the most fabulous description is just that crowbar in between an event and then the emotion, you know, that kind of just that second of space is whenever you explain it like that, I can totally get what that means. Because one of the things I was going to ask you was, what's the difference between mindfulness and meditation? But I guess that that is the difference is that mindfulness is is that sort of crowbar and that uh, that second of space and knowing that you can do that. And then meditation maybe is something much deeper. Is that right? Or what would you say? I would say that that mindfulness is is allowing what's here right now in this moment. So you can, you know, you know, mindful and mindless. We can be mindful in lots of situations. We can be mindful whenever we're speaking to our partners or we can be mindless. You know, we can be thinking about what we're going to say or we can be thinking about our day. Or whenever we're driving our car, we can be mindful, very present to kind of what's happening in that moment. Or we can be mindless thinking about what's happening next. So mindfulness is really paying attention to what's here in this moment, non-judgmentally. And I kind of boil that down to saying yes to what is. It's just saying yes to this moment. So even if something has happened with the children or in your relationship, it's like, yes, this is. This is where I am right now in this moment. And to sort of take it one step further, maybe one step a little bit deeper, is is that this is the only moment that's real. This moment that we're sitting here talking to each other is the moment that's real. We can't go past to this morning. We can't fast forward until the end of the day. This is the moment in our lives that's real. And what you tend to find is, is that in this moment, in the present, it's usually okay. We're sitting here, I'm in a beautiful studio, um, <laughs> you know, the lights are shining, I've got some tea here. My problems are, my problems are in the future. In this moment, everything's okay. And so mindfulness is just being here in this moment. And then meditation then is a tool to focus on something, to really focus the mind, to anchor, your, anchor yourself into something. So for example, I mentioned there that breathing meditation I did. Breathing in, this is my in-breath. Breathing out, this is my out-breath. I was meditating on my breath. I was giving my breath my full attention to the exclusion of everything else. And that's a a fantastic tool just to be able to rest the mind. Because there's quite a lot of things that we do that feels like our mind is resting, but it's not. For instance, like uh, social media is a good example. 
we feel like we're relaxing, that we're resting our mind, but we're not. We're absorbing thousands of people's information and we're sort of just passively, passively moving through that. We're not really fully paying attention to every single thing. And at the same time, we're not completely resting our mind. It's sort of like a passive kind of moving through and it actually keeps the mind very active and it's very draining. So mindfulness just allows you just to be here in this moment and take a bit of a breath and start again. We'll be back in just a minute after this short message from the Parentline team. Parentline NI is a free confidential service offering advice, support and guidance on any parenting matter. If you would like some support with any of the issues raised in today's podcast or any other parenting issue, please call the Parentline team today on free phone 0808 8020 400 or check out our Facebook page for more information. Now, on with the show. I guess it helps as well as you you'd said earlier, like whenever you were initially going through mental health problems and you said about how much you were missing your kids at that stage. Mm. I guess mindfulness helps whenever you're co-parenting, whenever you don't have your kids maybe for, for part of the week and that whenever you do have them, you can train yourself to just really live in that moment, you know, not regret the time you're, you're not with them, but just really love the time that you are with them. Absolutely. And I think as a, as a father or as a separated parent, I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of expectation that I think we put on ourselves that because we only see them for 14 hours or seven hours in the week, that that has to be fun time, has to be really, really good, really high energy that, um, you know, that almost I can't let them forget about me. You know, they have to know, they have to love, they have to love me too. They have to love spending time with me. And you almost load that with a lot of expectation. And I think that, again, mindful, taking a breath, just being in the moment. Because what happens a lot of the time with with young people, in my experiences, is that they, they enjoy the simple things. And I think that, and I was certainly guilty of this, that you felt like you needed to take them to Legoland and, and get all the McDonald's and the Mods ice cream on the way. And do you know what? they would have been happy with a, a Tesco meal deal in the park just to spend that quality time with you. It kind of reminds me of love languages, the five love languages. And it's something that I've been exploring recently about loving people in the way that they want to be loved, not just in the way that you want to receive your love. I'm loving the sound of that. I don't know that. Love no. languages. I do, I'm not even sure I'm fluent in one, never mind five. Oh, wow. <laughs> you need to get on the love languages. Tell me about that. What's that then? Oh, I would love to. Uh, what a treat for your listeners. Uh, so this is uh, Dr. Gary Chapman. Um, he is a relationship counsellor, therapist, and he has developed a model called the five love languages. Um, and basically what it is, is it says that everybody speaks a love language, a primary love language. And you tend to find that the way in which people give love is the way that they like to receive love. And there's five love languages. So the five love languages, if I can remember them, is uh, words of affirmation. So that's saying kind things, complimentary things, compliments. The second is acts of service. So that's very much a doing, cleaning the house, making the dinner, fixing things, you know, making your life a little bit easier. The third is gifts. So buying gifts, making gifts. The fourth is quality time. So giving you one-to-one eye contact, holding the space. And the fifth then is physical touch. 
So for example, my primary love language is physical touch. And so as a result, I hug everybody. I hug my kids, I kiss their cheeks, I hold their hands, I give them back rubs and they hate it. They are, they're like, get away from me. Stop bothering me. And uh, recently we did the online quiz. You can just Google the five love languages quiz. Um, you can go straight into it. You don't have to pay for the results or anything. And do you know what they scored in physical touch for their love languages? What? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> so we think, we think we're loving someone because, because we love in the way that we want to be loved. And I ran a I ran a four hour workshop with a uh, with a dental surgery in Monkstown, and I introduced the five love languages and I was chatting to them, and a guy says, "I I I don't know what the problem is with my wife," and I was like, "Right, okay, okay, what's happening?" He says, "Look, I took her to the Clodden Hotel." Five star hotel, and I bought her a brand new Land Rover. Do you know the the VXR two thousand deluxe? I was like, no, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> and um, a part of that, and do you know what? She did nothing but complain. And I was like, right, okay. What sort of things was she saying? Well, look, she wanted me to sit down and and have a couple's massage and all. And then I sat down for a minute, and then I thought, I can't sit here. I need to get out of there. And she was really annoyed and I couldn't figure out what, why she was annoyed because sure, the place was coming down and the room had oil paintings and everything. And the more he talked, all I could hear was gifts, 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 yeah, gifts, yeah. gifts. Hotel, the car, the X, Y, and Z. And anything he told me about her was quality time, quality time, quality time. She would have been happy in the park with the meal deal like I talked about <laughs> and didn't need to go to Legoland, you know. As long as he's holding her hand on the park bench, yeah. As long as he's holding her hand. Yeah. And I think that we we often we often look past each other when it comes to when it comes to when it comes to love and we, we're trying our best to love and then we're loving, we feel frustrated because we can't understand why the person isn't feeling valued and then isn't returning um, you know, our, our love back to us. And and Dr. Chapman says in the book that we each have a love tank. And he says when you fill someone's love tank full they will overflow and they will spill back into you. And I just thought it was, uh, I thought it was, thought it was beautiful. And I think that everybody needs to know what their love language is and know what the love language of their children and their, and their partners. And really handy for, for kids as well to know these kind of things, I think at a young age. So there isn't that sort of confusion where people are trying their best, but they're just trying in the wrong way to, to kind of make it work with each other. Mm. I know that you're a great believer in that as well, about teaching kids about addressing and looking at their mental health from a, from a young age, from, from primary school age, you know, about getting in there and telling them about mindfulness. This is what you do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I was trained uh, on a six-week mindfulness course called PAWS, P-A-W-S-B, you know, like a, like a puppy's paw, uh, by the Mindfulness in Schools Project, a wonderful charity all kind of set up to, uh, to get more mindfulness into, uh, into schools. And I go in and I talk to the young people and I, I tell them, you know, your untrained mind is like a puppy. And they love that. And I show them images of the puppies and they go, oh. And uh, I say, you know, what sort of things do puppies do? And they all laugh and they say, well, uh, you know, sometimes it makes messes. And I say, does your mind ever make messes? And they're like, yeah, it does. And like, what else do puppies do? And they're like, oh, it brings back things you didn't ask for. Sometimes it brings in, you know, maybe a shoe or maybe even an animal or something that you don't want. And I'm like, hmm, when you're in bed at nighttime, 
does your mind ever bring things that you don't want it to? And they're like, yeah. What sort of things? And they say, it tells me about maybe about my friendships and maybe worrying about a friend or maybe worrying about mum and dad. And, you know, I get to hear everything when I'm in the school. I get to hear about how they feel about their friends, how they feel about their home life, how they feel about their tests and their exams. And I teach them that just like a puppy, we can train our minds. And I ask them, you know, how do we train a puppy to be shout at it, to be hit it, to be, to be scold it? And we say, no. They say, well, we have to be, have to be kind to it, don't we? And I'm like, absolutely. We have to be kind to our minds whenever we're training our mind. But we also need to be firm and say that I don't want to think about thoughts that are going to be scaring me. Or firm that if I have an emotion or a thought that I don't know how to deal with, that I get some help, I get some support with that. And we also be patient and we also have that repetition. It requires that repetition to be able to train the mind. And I think it's it's wonderful that schools are are sort of are waking up to this a little bit. And I think that as as many terrible consequences of COVID nineteen, that funding has came massively into the fray now where, you know, we are getting funding into primary schools, into, you know, community organizations that we're starting to talk about this. And we have the opportunity now to go into schools and talk about mindfulness to young people and they love it. They they seem to connect really well with it. And when I teach them like simple, uh, simple tools and techniques like uh, the finger breathing or the tummy and chest breathing or some of the other bits and pieces that they really, really love it. And they really, they really enjoy having that peacefulness and having that calm. I think it's such a, a fantastic thing for for kids to learn about in schools. I know my kids' primary school, my youngest, her primary school have done it. And I just think it's the most wonderful thing. I just wish that there were almost sessions for parents as well. So we could go along and learn how to follow that up and keep that going at home too, you know? Yeah. And especially like, you know, yourself coming from a co-parenting place, it must be a fabulous tool that you can teach your kids, your own kids to utilize and to, to practice as well. Sorry, I'm laughing as you're saying that because my, everything I do is boring enough to my children. <laughs> That's <laughs> part you, of being a parent, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And something I learned is, is that, you know, children, they really learn, they really learn by watching what you do and not what you say. They, they really follow your behaviors you know, so if you say, oh, you know, fast food, too much fast food, bad, don't do it, don't do it. But if you're sitting eating a, a Whopper every night, you know, that's what they're going to, that's what they're going to want, that's what they're going to, that's what they're going to see. So I kind of learned early on that sort of forcing it on them, it wasn't necessarily the, wasn't necessarily the way forward, but showing them me connecting them with it and showing them how I acknowledge my own feelings and my own emotions and as as somebody who's a mental health professional, it's always a pursuit of mine to be more in touch with my feelings, more in touch with my emotions and express them in more healthy ways. And I had an instance where I have an elderly friend uh, called Edna and Edna is 94 years old this year and uh, we've been friends since I've been three years old. And Edna got really unwell there the other month and I was in the car and it was just in the back of my mind and it was starting to upset me. And I just... I just really felt that emotion. I let that emotion out and I began to kind of just sob a little bit. And um, they said, Dad, are they okay? And my initial response was just to be like, you don't know what I'm like. I just, well, I said, you know, I'm just feeling a wee bit sad. 
And they sort of looked and they didn't really know what to say. And I said, yeah, I'm feeling a wee bit sad. You know, dad's friend Edna. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, Edna's just a wee bit unwell. And uh, I'm just feeling a wee bit concerned for her because I love her so much. And they just, they just sat and they didn't really know what to do. And I said, you know, and it's okay. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel to feel that emotion because Edna means so much to me. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to sit with this emotion. I'm not going to try and chase it away. Uh, I'm going to sit and I'm going to breathe with it. And I know that when it's ready, it's going to move in its own time. And then recently my, uh, my daughter was going through a bit of a situation with, uh, with a friend of hers. And she didn't say that word for word, but she said something along the lines of, that is really difficult right now, but I'm just trying not to react to it. And I know that it's going to get better in its own time. And I just thought, wow, isn't that, isn't that the beauty to see your, to see your children grow and to see your children develop? And I think that we have to model those behaviors. And I think self-care really comes into that when we're looking after ourselves, and whenever we're being, being as kind and as loving as we can to ourselves, we're automatically a better parent. We're automatically a better partner. We're automatically a better coworker whenever we're doing good, whenever we're looking after our self-care. A hundred percent. I totally and utterly agree with you. So tell me then, how can parents, how can dads like yourself, how can we bring mindfulness into our day to day? Are there are there easy ways? Where would you start? Ah, loads of places to start. And it really depends where you are kind of in that journey. So I can speak very generally, but some people say, my mind's just absolutely a mile a minute and I can never switch off and I'm so busy and I can't even sit for a second, you know, and it really depends. It really depends where you sort of are. And I think a really good place to begin is to build a relationship with yourself. Get to know your mind, make your mind your best friend. We have relationships with a thousand people on social media. We have relationships with a hundred co-workers. Like, you know, there's probably a celebrity that you probably know every intimate detail of their relationships and their career, you know. But we don't really have much of a relationship with ourselves. And I would say, build that relationship with you. And I think journaling or reflective writing, starting to make notes of your life is really, really helpful. Um, I have an app on my phone called Five Minute Journal. And what Five Minute Journal says is, um, you know, what's three things that would make today a good day? What's three things that you're grateful for? You know, what's your inspiration today? And then I ask you later on in the evening, what could have made today a better day? And I started to go through that, filled it in, you know, for a year. And I started to flick through and you can do sort of like insight analysis. And I noticed that, when I asked, when I filled in the reflection, what could have made today a better day? It was made more time in the morning for me, made more time in the morning, made more time in the morning, made more time in the morning. Because whenever you're a parent, whenever your day starts and you get up at the same time as your children, it just, it's just a whirlwind. It just starts Absolutely. to go into, into the doing. And what I started doing was trying to go to bed a little bit earlier. And I can do that because the children are older now and getting up a little bit earlier in the morning. And having those quiet times in the moment where I can sit in the morning and not get into my phone, not start going through social media, not, as I say, but certain to understand the relationships with the rest of the world, not looking at the news, but sitting there with a piece of paper and saying, okay, where, where, where am I at today? How am I feeling? What do I want to accomplish? 
And let's say that you do you do notice that you have a strong emotion. And a lot of the time our emotions, they they come in without any warning or without even really any understanding of what's causing it. Like sometimes we wake up in the morning, we feel sad or we feel angry, we feel frustrated. And a really wonderful model that everyone can use is the model of RAIN, R-A-I-N. I don't know if you've heard of that before. No, never. It's been, it's as old as the hills, but it's been popularized by a, uh, by a mindfulness teacher called Tara Brack. Um, she has a lot of books on radical compassion, self-compassion. And the R stands for recognize. So what you want to do is you want to recognize what emotion is here and you want to label it. So I'll maybe sit there and I'm going, okay, well, it's, it's worry. I think it's worry. I'm going in to do a, a podcast today in a studio. Yeah, I think, I think it's worry that I'm feeling right now. And you just label it. And the next thing you go to then is A, allow. Allow that emotion. Because quite often, whenever we feel something, we don't want it. Why am I feeling like this again? Or this is typical of me and we get into negative thoughts. Allowing is saying yes to that emotion that's there. So I would say, recognize what's there, label it, and allow it, say yes to it, and say, hello, worry. Ak worry, it's yourself, welcome back. Oh, worry. And then the I is investigate. And you can investigate where that worry is coming from, but I think that that sometimes brings about overthinking. It brings about paralysis through analysis, churning over and over and over. And what I do is I investigate what is amazing about me, the fact I have worry. And I have the superpower that if you tell me anything you're worried or anxious about, I can tell you something amazing about yourself. And in this situation of me worrying this morning about coming to do a podcast, I investigated what's amazing about me worrying. Well, the people going to listen to this. There's parents going to listen to this. I'm worrying because I want to help somebody. I want this to be a really good episode. I want to be able to give tools and techniques that are helpful. And then we go on then to N, which is nurture. And I'm starting to nurture myself. I'm saying, Patrick, you're worrying because you're a good person. You're worrying because you want to be really good. How can we look after you this morning and starting to nurture yourself? And I think one of the wonderful things that we can do is treat yourself like someone that you love or treat yourself like someone that you're responsible for looking after. Like if you were a hundred years old and your great, great granddaughter came to you and said, you know, said, great, great granny, um, I'm going on this podcast today and I'm really, really worried. What advice would you give to them? Would you say, you know, drink three Red Bulls and think about all the ways in which this could go wrong and don't eat any breakfast because you need to sit here and you need to write down every intelligent thing that you're going to say and, and rehearse this and drive yourself to the edge and, and leave it to the last minute and then drive, you know, 90 miles an hour down the... No, you would say, darling, take a deep breath. Whatever is going to be today is going to be you're going to be amazing. You're amazing. And give that love and give that advice to yourself. And I think that that's such a powerful thing to do for yourself. I think that's, uh, I could not agree more. I always think to myself, or I try to think to myself, you know, be kind, be kind to yourself. It's not an easy thing to do. And I think as, as parents, especially, we kind of knock ourselves around the head thinking that we've got things wrong, thinking, what have we not done for our kids? What have we done wrong? And sometimes I have thought to myself, I wish I would be as nice to myself as I try to be to my kids. You know, that kind of thing. Cause, mm -hmm. cause then I think like you say as well, they model that they will, you know, if they see me being kind to myself, then they'll be kind to themselves and not so hard on themselves. But it's a hard thing. I mean, I can say that 
here in this moment, I think I need to practice mindfulness like you've been telling us about today to actually put that that in place and do that, you know? Yeah. And I think one of the sim- one of the most simple things that we can do is uh, take a breath and just start again. Remind yourself that this is a new moment because there's there's loads of unhelpful thinking styles, magnifying the negative aspect and minimizing the positive, catastrophizing, you know, the worst case scenario, mind reading, but other people might be thinking about us. And sometimes what we can do is stand there, feel the weight of the body on the ground, feel the connection of your feet actually on the floor, feel your body resting in space and connect in with your breath. Follow that breath all the way in, follow that breath all the way out and just be there in that moment. And so much happens. There's been so much amazing studies have been done now into mindfulness and just the breathing. There's a study that was done in, uh, in Harvard University, I believe, and it was an eight-week study on mindfulness. And what they did was they got people to, um, to practice mindfulness for less than 20 minutes every day. And at the end of the study, they were able to able to see some great changes. But what really like blew their mind, what took them by surprise, was that actually people's brains change shape. And what they found out is, is that thoughts that fire together, wire together. If we're taking moments to be still, to connect with our bodies, to focus on what's positive, to focus on what we're grateful for, our brain goes, positivity seems to be what we're doing now. Okay, give it more resource for positivity. We need more of that. And so we can actually remodel our brains. And whenever I talk to people about about mental illness and about depression, one of the things that I say is, is is that having depression or having mental illness is not going to be the end of you. We have something called neuroplasticity. We can rewire our brains. We can reprogram ourselves and... How we do that, of course, is that it is that is the challenge. How we go from being extremely low and depressed to getting back into you know having having good mental health and and rewiring that, but it's actually possible. And I uh, and I, I just think that that's that's beautiful that that exists and that we can all achieve that. And that neuroplasticity is at its most stretchy and and malleable whenever people are you know, young, like little kids. So it's great to get in there and teach them mindfulness at that stage. But I wanted to ask you, how open are other dads, dads like yourself, to the idea of mindfulness? Because I, I, everything you're telling me makes me think, why am I not doing this? Why have I not already been doing this? You, I mean, you're, you've sold me completely. But I just wonder how open other dads are to it. I think that whenever... Whenever the dads sit down with me, I always say, look, all we're going to do here is we're going to sit and we're going to watch our minds. We're going to observe our thoughts and we're going to notice what happens whenever we observe our thoughts. And whenever we get a strong thought or a strong feeling that feels overwhelming, we're going to go to refuge into something that's grinding. We're going to connect with our breath and we're going to follow our breath. Notice where we feel our breath most strongly in our body. And when you get into that, there's nothing... There's nothing weird or wonderful or woo about that. I think it's really just about having things, you know, being kind of being packaged correctly and, and kind of getting them down. But I think that I don't know if you're big into your podcast in general, but with the likes of uh, Joe Rogan and Diary of a Diary of a CEO and, you know, even um, 
you know, the ex-England uh, rugby captain, uh, Johnny Wilkinson, he has a podcast and his first guest that he had on was a meditation teacher, you know, so it's very much coming into popular culture now. With men, there's a lot of uh, personal development kind of coming around. So I think it's, I think it's catching on. I think we just sort of need to, you know, need to get our, uh, get our dads into the, into the room and start the, start the conversation. And uh, I think once we're, once we're there, we'll realize it's something that's beneficial. A hundred percent. I think what we need to do is just get people to download this podcast and listen to it over and over again. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the answer? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. Think it's so Patrick. <laughs> it's been fantastic talking to you today I honestly could talk to you for another two hours but I know you probably have other things to do with your day (laughs) I would keep you sitting talking tell me about all different things but if people want to find out more if they want to catch up with you where can we find that where can we where can we go and, and hook you out Patrick (laughs) <laughs> oh it's been such a pleasure I've, I've really really enjoyed it I just I just love talking about this so you can see why I've done this as a job but yeah if people want to get in touch with me they can get um, they can get me on social um, I am on Facebook and I'm on Instagram um, so it's new ways NI I've got some resources on there and uh, if you scroll down far enough you'll be able to see me uh, doing some uh, meditation by the seaside in Hollywood that was my uh, that was my little task during lockdown so there's uh, there's some mindfulness on there and I'll be posting sort of uh, tips and techniques for looking after your mental health super absolute pleasure to talk to you today thank you so much thanks cheers thanks for listening to the Parentline podcast If you'd like access to the next episode as soon as it goes live, just click follow wherever you get your podcasts. At Parentline, we love supporting as many parents and carers as possible. So if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to consider sharing it with a friend, colleague or family member. Don't forget, if you would like support or guidance with any parenting issue, we're here for you on 0808 8020 400. Catch you on the next one.